Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have my friend Matt Harris here to break down the news of the week and Wayne Miller coming up in a little bit. Uh, but before I dive in, I did just want to acknowledge this podcast has been on a bit of a hiatus. I was not feeling very well, but I do very much appreciate all of the people who contacted me during my illness to tell me how much they missed this show. It made it easier to find the motivation to work through all of the recovery that I needed to get back here. So I am very happy to be back in front of this microphone and the podcast will continue unabated for the foreseeable future. So with that, Matt Harris, let me bring you in here. How are you, sir? Doing well. Doing well. Thanks good for, to see you. Good to be seen. Thanks for being here. My man. Um, let us dive right into the news of the week because in my head, I had planned to wait one more week to bring the show back, but then Seth Siegel Gardner and Terrence Gallivant announced they were closing their restaurant, The Past and Provisions, and as we were sitting there having one final lunch in the restaurant, I, I knew we had to talk about it. Yes. I think that's, that's uh, yes. This is a biggie. This one hurts a little bit. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I am, I'm sad, sad in a way, uh, you know, at the same time, I feel like for those guys that, uh, you know, I trust that it's what's best for them and, um, you know, have to be not completely selfish about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I generally try not to get too attached to any one restaurant. I I try not to be too brokenhearted when places close, but you know, passing provisions is one of that that class of 2012, which is kind of when Houston dining took a step forward in terms of its national prominence and just in terms of its overall quality. And if you sort of put it in a class with Underbelly and Oxheart, you know, that's the year that Uchi opened, Trinity opened in the very end of 2011. All together, you know, chef-owned, ingredient-focused, you know, upscale, but not too expensive, kind of approachable, you know, all of these restaurants kind of raised the game in Houston. And I mean, Uchi's obviously still around, but, but P&P was the last of the locally owned restaurants. And I don't know, what does it say? Like, what does it say about Houston in 2019 that there's not room for the pass and provisions anymore? Well, I'm not, uh, um, right. We should say, I guess I should say, we don't know the specific reason that restaurants clo- that this restaurant is closing. I assume it's closing for the reason restaurants usually close, which is that it was not doing enough business. It, it did not have enough diners coming in the door to make its continued existence a reasonable proposition for the amount of work required. Right. And, and I, I don't know that to be true. I just, I'm assuming that to be true. The, uh, I think there's a couple things there. One, and you know, that sort of that year, 2012, to me feels a little bit kind of like the prologue for the current chapter that we're in with the Houston dining scene. 
with passing provisions, I think it would be an ambitious restaurant to open today in Houston. So we're going back to 2012. That, that's like just a gigantic leap. So timing may be part of it. You know, it may just a, it may have been ahead of itself, almost to its detriment. Well, or or you know, I was thinking about this like. Like, could it be that, that we kind of, it was ahead of its time maybe a little bit with the, the casual side provisions, you know, wood-fired oven, mostly centered around pizza and pasta, and then the pass, a fine dining, a tasting menu. Like, could it just be that we've caught up, right? I mean, there aren't really, the, the tasting menu thing has kind of come and gone. Oxhart obviously closed. You know, Tris in the Woodlands is supported by the success of Hubble and Hudson, or excuse me, <laughs> try that again. Curate in the Woodlands is supported by the success of Trist, formerly Hubble and Hudson Bistro. Really, the only restaurant that is a pure tasting menu is Indigo, and it's 13 seats. We're going to talk about Indigo in a minute. Sure. I, I would add Eculent. Yeah, right. Eculent. Just right. to be Eculent, technical. Right. Eculent down in Chemo, which is this bonkers, like, mad scientist, 30-course yeah, that's a definite experience. Um, but so I, I feel like maybe like the casual pizza pasta thing, like we've kind of caught up to that, right? Maybe maybe that offering's not quite as compelling as it used to be. And then the past, I think maybe it's just not like, I guess what I'm saying, Matt, is it is hard to be fundamentally a trendy restaurant without a clearly defined, like it's Italian, it's Mexican, it's a steakhouse, it's got, a you know, in a, without having a specific genre for seven years. I just think it's hard to sustain that business model over the long term. That's uh, likely. Um, I th- there's just, I think, a lot of things, obviously, as I'm sitting there stumbling over my words. I'm out of practice, Daddy. I'm sorry. Daddy, I'm out of practice. I'm sorry. We should have, we should have had a rehearsal. We've got a visitor in here watching. I think he's taking notes. Is this a performance review? It's a, no, he's an intern, so this is allegedly an educational opportunity for him to observe us fumbling over what to say well, about let, this restaurant. Let, let me apologize in advance to you. Um, it, uh, I do, it's, it's probably both. I, I do think that uh, it, it, was, it was ahead of its time. I, I still remember, you know, 2012, like what an exciting time in, in Houston that, that was. And, uh, you know, we had another little bump maybe 2014 and then a little plateau and then 2017 18 it's just really really taken off and i i think seth and terrence deserve some credit and recognition for being part of that foundation that has sort of gotten us to this current phase right no and they they absolutely do right just from raising the bar from what we had previously right it it educated diners it helped raise their expectations for, for the standards that they wanted new restaurants to have. And also, I mean, let's, let's not mince words. A shitload of really talented people work there over its run. Yes. And so, you know, they have such high standards. They have such good training working with chefs like Marcus Samuelson and Gordon Ramsay before they went off on their own that, you know, working, working for, the past and provisions was kind of boot camp for a generation of line cooks who are now sous chefs 
and even, you know, starting to open their own places, right? Like, you know, is, is Julia Duran at, who's now at Nancy Hustle and was at Hunky Dory before that, like, is she the pastry chef that she is without having worked at PNP? I, I don't know. Right. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to know. Well, so, you, yeah, you, you can't. Yeah. Right. But there's a, but there's, you know, there's a whole group of servers, bartenders, front of house, back of house, yada, yada, like every aspect that churned through that place. It, it did have the reputation of being a difficult place to a difficult working environment. Right. And I saw some of that on social media from people who, who worked there, you know, in the, in the mix of, I'm so sad that this place is closing. I saw the pushback from former staff like, hey, just so you know, it was really like behind the scenes, it was really hard. But, you know, well, but, but that tension, that, that, that desire for excellence right. produced good results. I mean, I, I never had a bad meal there. I think that's fair. Yeah. And I, you know, I was thinking back and we had lunch there Friday um, and, you know, it was a, a lot of, a lot of good memories there and, and some really foundational experiences uh, in Houston um, that sort of like, was like, you know, this is really cool. This, here's a restaurant that could succeed in any big city in the U.S. on its own merits. Absolutely. And at one time, especially the past, was considered among the very best restaurants in Houston. Yes. So the only thing that I wonder about is, did it, the, the only thing, well, I'll try this again. The only way in which it wasn't quite as successful as maybe it could have been is it didn't get the national attention, I think, that people with, Seth and Terrence's resumes coming into the restaurant probably would have hoped for, right? James Beard's semifinalist nomination, but not finalist. They were not selected to be food and wine best new chefs, which is such a critical component on that path to a James Beard award as Chris Shepard and Justin, you were and Brian Caswell before them. So it's a little bit tricky, you know, an ambitious restaurant, restaurant that was striving for greatness that, that did set a standard locally and it just never quite got to that next level much in the same way that like i think if you asked educated diners they would rank cultivare as one of the very best restaurants in the city and it hasn't kind of broken through and gotten that national reputation yet uh yes this is not to say that cultivare is closing anytime soon no no okay no no not no i think no the cultivare remains very busy and on a con it's like a it's you know we're recording this at, at two o'clock in the afternoon i think there's already a line out the door of people waiting when they open at five yeah like i don't i don't worry about cultivare's future i just mean that there are there are very ambitious locally acclaimed restaurants right they they win all the tastemaker awards and, and back in the day the the my table awards and they rank in the top 10 for Allison Cook's top 100 and, and all it, but they, they don't quite break through and get to that next, right? Like if the passing provisions had won a James Beard award, if Seth and Terrence were food and wine, best new chefs, maybe that would have boosted its reputation regionally, nationally to the point where it became a destination in the same way that Underbelly and Oxheart did. And maybe it would have sustained itself, or maybe we would be talking about whatever their next restaurant is, 
right? They could have reconcepted the space, right. opened a new restaurant in there instead of just closing and going away, which is what it seems like they're doing. Right. No. Well, I and I think it's a it's a little different format too, and that that has uh, a lot to do with it. Uh, you know, the the pass. It's basically two restaurants within run one restaurant right. sharing a kitchen. Um, so I think there were some some challenges there from the get go. It was risky, not just because it was in Houston, but also because of the time that they opened. Um, and and sometimes these things just they just have their own path. So. Right. This this had maybe this had run its course. Right. And that and that's not anything negative to say. Right. And and nothing about what provisions closing or the past whatever would stop me from going to a new restaurant either from both of those chefs working together or either one of them working separately. Not at all. Right. I would be very excited about a new restaurant from Seth Siegel Gardner and Terrence Gallivan together separately. However, they, you know, whatever they decide their future, their professional future is like when either one or both of them opens a new restaurant, you know, I want to be there on opening day. I want, I want to be part of it. Well, again, selfishly, I hope they both stay around Houston, but I, you know, I'm going to have to, um, sort of let go of that a little bit and, and trust that they'll do what they need to do and what's best for them and their family. But, um, yes, I, you know, I, I, I look forward to what's next for them and, if it's in Houston, great. I will be there. And if it's not, I I may show up as well. You've been known to get on a plane for yeah. for a good meal, and certainly. And if it's in Tokyo, I will be there opening day. <laughs> All right. Topic number two. Ben Berg, the proprietor of B and B Butchers, is having a busy summer. He just took the wraps off of BB Italia, his new concept for the former Carmelo's space out in the western edge of Memorial. Uh, but he is not stopping there. He's going to open a second location of BB Lemon, the highly successful... Well, I had called it a burger joint when it opened, but it's, it's evolved a little bit. Uh, but he has claimed the Pax Americana space for a second location of, of BB Lemon. Matt, we've, we've been to BB Lemon. We've talked about it on the show. Uh, and we are both Montrose residents. I think this is good news for us. I think it's very good news. I mean, I've been, you know, it's always funny when a new restaurant opens. It seems like, there, you know, there's a group and then there's one that kind of everybody wants to try. BB Lemon has been that restaurant for me over the last like four or five months where my oil and gas buddies want to try it. I've been there with food people and not food people. Uh, and I've had consistently good food there, right? That, that kind of very simple, very classic cheeseburger is like among the, you know, it's in the Pantheon. It's in the must try list for Houston burger hounds. And then they do that kind of seafoody stuff. I mean, you know, I've had a, I've had a fish special there. I've had those blue crab beignets. I've had other, you know, I haven't had the, the clam chowder in the bread bowl, but it looks good. I have not had the $30 lobster roll because I just, I have strong feelings about paying that much money for a lobster roll. I have. I, someone did take me up on my DM offer. They'll rename, re, remain nameless at this time. Uh, and I believe that's changed. I believe the lobster roll is not $38. No, it's more. $28. They, they dropped the, they came to their senses. They dropped the price. A little bit. Um, the, uh, I, w- I would be remiss not mentioning the French onion soup. 
Yeah. Is uh, quite tasty um, as well. And, and I've, I've been there several times. Um, again, uh, mostly good experiences. Um, the burger to me is is the the standout item on the menu. Right. Texas Wagyu beef, just cheese, onion, toasted bun, really simple, really pure. But yes. All about that like fatty richness of the beef. And I and I think it will be the standout burger in Montrose as well. Ooh. There's some competition in Montrose for the best burger in Montrose cuz right up the street at Westheimer and in Montrose you've got the Burger Joint, you got Shake Shack, you got Hay Merchant, Buff Burgers right around the corner from there. I mean, there are some good burgers in Montrose. I stand by my comment. Okay, I just wanted to make sure I, I, I felt like you were going to, but I just had to give the listeners a little context of, of that's, that's heady stuff. Now, the other thing I will say about BB Lemon is if you go in for a burger and a beer, you're out for 20 bucks. If you make a meal of it and you get into like the steak tartare and the blue crab beignets and you have a couple of cocktails, I've had dinner for two there that hit a hundred bucks without even trying hard. Well, so right. it's a sneaky, it's like sneaky high low in that sense. It's an, it's an upscale diner. That's a good, yeah, I like that. I'm stealing that. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they do. And, and the, I like that you could go in there. You can, you could go in there for a salad. You can go in there for a burger. You can go in there for, uh, don't they have chicken fried steak on the menu? No, but they have a great fish and chips. Thank you, fish and chips. I knew there's something from They need it. I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest that the next time I see Ben Bird. Right, right. Because that would make chicken fried steak would make sense in that context. Um, so but it's kind of East Coast, right? Like that's the one it thing is. is it's not a Texas a Texas BB Lemon. If BB Lemon had been opened by a native Texan instead of a native New Yorker, you're right. I think chicken fried steak would be on the menu. Off the menu. Oh, problem solved. Pax Americana had that. For a little while. Right. Secret chicken fried steak. Right. That's 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 the secret. It may have that you were right. Well, the secret's out. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Um, and then topic number three. I said we would talk about restaurant indigo. It just keeps getting more and more national attention. Food and wine has named it to its list of the ten best new restaurants in the country. That follows up on GQ magazine, which also named it to its list of the best new restaurants in the country. Um, I mean, I have a complicated set of theories about what it is about Indigo that merits this kind of attention. Um, and I'll discuss those in just a second. But Matt, let me just throw it to you first. Do you, are you surprised at all? I mean, of all the new restaurants to open in Houston in the last year, are you surprised that it's Indigo that has kind of caught the imagination of national writers? Um, surprised? No. I'm not surprised. Are you disappointed? <laughs> no, no, I'm not disappointed. Uh, I mean, it is, it is getting a lot of ink, um, which I think is well-deserved. Um, I mean, the food that Johnny's turning out of that kitchen alone is enough to merit recognition. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a kitchen without a vent hood. It's it, it's it, it, it's a kitchen without gas, as far as I know. I, I that is correct. Uh, and and if you haven't been, go. You should go. 
uh, and experience it for yourself. Um, I think that uh, the food stands up, the story's there. It's it's very ambitious. I think Johnny's being true to his vision, and he's being recognized for that. And I I don't have anything but congratulations to say. Right. I the right. You were there with me at the friends and family last summer. And then we went back in December to kind of revisit and the speed with which that restaurant evolved from kind of from, from Johnny and his, his wife, Chana kind of having an idea of what they wanted it to be to what it has become is really remarkable. And to take these African-American food traditions um, and then kind of blend them with modern thoughts about, preservation and pickling and, and how to, how to utilize, you know, fresh local ingredients in creative ways to create these dishes and then to be willing to tell the story of the political and social currents that inspired the original dishes and shaped the direction of the restaurant. It's, it's just a very, you know, we talk about an experience, right? There's nothing like it in Houston as a total, right? There are, there are restaurants serving, there are a lot of restaurants serving great food, but there are not restaurants talking about the reason that we're, you know, the reason that these ingredients became this dish is because there's a history of mass incarceration or we're still getting over the legacy of slavery or Marcus Garvey and the black separatist movement or the Harlem Renaissance or, or whatever it is. And, you know, we, Johnny, you know, Johnny came on the show and we talked about some of this stuff. Um, but, you know, I think I, so I think the reason that it has caught the attention of national food writers is because they've never had an experience like that either. And we're in a time as a media when, you know, they don't just want white guy chefs who work for Michelin starred chefs who are doing tasting menus with white tablecloths and fine, uh, you know, fine flatware and, and a, you know, 2000 bottles on the wine list, right? We want to broaden the definition of what restaurants are relevant and what restaurants are kind of driving the movement forward. And, you know, it's, it's good timing, right? And a compelling story and well-executed food that is kind of catapulted Indigo into this moment where Johnny's got a story to tell and people want to hear it, right? And and I and you know I I don't know I think that there are plenty of of people out there that have a story to tell. Johnny's is certainly very unique um, and deserves a lot of credit for uh, really being true to I think his vision. But the onus is on the journalists and the media and these people that are given the awards to find these places like Indigo. Um, and so uh, Indigo deserves, and, and I don't think it's going to stop anytime soon. Uh, I think they deserve all the recognition they're getting and more. Uh, it's great for Johnny. It's, it's uh, great for Indigo and then it's great for Houston. Right. Absolutely. All right. That does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. You're listening to what's Eric eating. So, Matt, for our restaurants of the week, I want to talk about 
two dining experiences, one we had separately and one we had together. Uh, no more significant restaurant to open during my little hiatus than Squabble, the new uh, concept from Justin Yu, the chef owner of Theodore Rex and Bobby Hugel, the proprietor of Anvil. Uh, they already have Better Luck Tomorrow, which has been a big hit for them. Squabble, and, and whereas Better Luck Tomorrow, when it opened, Bobby was very explicit, this is a bar that happens to serve food. Even though that food is excellent, you might, you might conceivably treat it like a restaurant by going there primarily for the food instead of primarily for the drinks. Yes. Squabble is explicitly a restaurant where you're going for the food, but they also have really good drinks. So... Let me just let me just ask you, right? How was your meal at Squabble? Outstanding. Yeah, I mean, I went a couple of weeks ago with uh, Houston Food Finder publisher Phaedra Cook, so we were, you know, we were both we were both catching up. She because she doesn't spend all of her time in Houston anymore, and me because I'd been away, as it were, uh, on a respite. On a respite. But, yeah, I mean, you know, Bobby and Justin have an eye for talent, certainly. Uh, and they tapped two really talented guys to lead that kitchen in Mark Clayton, who worked for Justin for a long time at Oxart, and Drew Gimma, who had been at Better Luck Tomorrow, but was the head baker at Common Bond when it opened. And that was the time when Common Bond had, like, Michelin star talent in its leadership, you know, starting with Roy Schwarzapel and then extending to Joe Bartolome and Drew and a couple other guys who, who aren't in Houston anymore. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, do you have a favorite dish? I did, and I think it was, just, again, you know, it, 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 to me, part of that, uh, um, the genius of, of Squabble, uh, albeit in its infancy, is is the partnership of of. Mark and Drew in the kitchen, uh, and and w- which leads to my favorite dish, which is the mussels dish. Yeah, that is a great dish. Um, pickled mussels on grilled sourdough with uh, with the beans, with those like, yeah, just a really like a really clever play, not just of flavors because you've got kind of the acidic from the pickling with the earthy from the the earthy kind of beans, but also the, the play of textures, the crunch of the bread. I mean, a, a really smart, really compelling dish and, and frankly, a really pretty dish too. I mean, it, it really, you know, it looks, it looks good on the ground. I got, I got a lot of likes for my picture of it. No. And yeah, I think compelling is a really good word. I, I, I mean, it's a dish that I thought about for several days after having it the first time. Um, you know, and I will say that that savory Dutch baby pancake that they're doing with the um, with the cheese and the preserved citrus and the black pepper and the honey. I mean, it's like kind of walking that sweet savory line. Mm-hmm. Like if it were if it were presented in lieu of a cheese course on the dessert end of the menu, like I would be fine with it there too. But you know, I, I mean, I just I love again the texture of a Dutch baby where it's crispy in the edges and kind of soft and chewy in the middle. And all of those flavors just come together so well. I mean, I, I don't think I could go back there and not get that dish again. Uh, well, I've been several times. 
and uh, uh, I will be there again this week. Um, Where, and, where's the invite? Uh, hang on, let me send it. I'm okay. You, you didn't get it. I I'm, I just pushed send. All right. Um, so it, yeah, it's it's been uh, been with different people, and and that's you know, it, it's one of those dishes that I think you're going to get more often than not. Yeah, I mean, we had the um, the pasta with the butter braised onions and the parmesan. I love that dish. I love that, and it's so simple, but it's just it's all about like how sweet those onions are, and the richness of the butter, and the pasta is beautifully cooked. I mean, it's just it's so simple. Yes. Um, I I did have one bitch. I had one small complaint. I got the. I got those red, those royal red shrimp that they're doing. Okay. And they hadn't peeled like the little digestive tract out of them, mm. which was unsightly. Maybe an oversight. Yeah. I just feel like it's one of those like kind of like, you know, they've been open. I mean, they've been open for a month. Like, you know, I'm not, I didn't crash their soft opening. I, I wasn't, I wasn't available. Right. They'd been open for three or four weeks by the time I, I made it there. But just, you know, like. In a very good meal, start to finish, it was like, yeah, it's like that's unappealing. That that's not not ideal. Did you have a dish that you liked less, or that you maybe you won't order again? Because because uh, I, I had a, I had one of those too. Certainly not that I wouldn't order again. We did order the poached fish, uh, and I, I it it was it was good. I think by the time um, we'd ordered probably too much it was just two of us just my my significant other and i and uh it may have just been kind of full because i was also, i knew that dessert at least two desserts were going to be ordered so um but i i would certainly if i was in the mood for seafood i would order it again yeah so we got the have you had the focaccia with the carrot I love the texture of the focaccia. It's so crispy and delicious. I thought the carrot was kind of whatever. Like I've kind of had, I've had, I feel like I've had that, that kind of carrot spread before. And yeah, there was some zing in it. We have, I've, I've had yeah, it, it has that, like a little spicy thing in the middle, but um, I'm not I sure. I, 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 I've enjoyed it both times. Okay. Um, yeah, and we only we were so full we only had room for the strawberry dessert, which was delicious. I would definitely get that again. I want to try more of the desserts. The only and then the right cool wine list, very eclectic, fun cocktails. They named one after who framed Roger Rabbit. Um, it's like I think it's like it's like, and I mean ice for when Eddie Eddie Valiant orders a a, a drink on the rocks and they bring it with a rock. And I mean ice. Anyway, props to props to general manager Terry Williams for the Roger Rabbit. Who framed Roger Rabbit reference? Yes. Um, the only thing about the only thing about Squabble is it is sneaky expensive. Dinner dinner for three with one cocktail and one glass of wine because I wasn't drinking at the time, or maybe two cocktails and anyway, whatever it was, one hundred and seventy dollars before the tip. Now I'm not mad because I feel like we Is got that total uh, before. Yeah, before the tip, not the total 170. Before, yeah, for three people. Yeah, I'm not mad about that. I wasn't mad, but it just 
I've heard that from other people that they, you know, you have a couple glasses of wine, you have a cocktail, whatever, whatever, you know, two people can drop $200 there pretty easily. And so I don't say that, I don't say that as a criticism so much as just, you know, it was kind of billed as a neighborhood restaurant, but it's really priced like price wise. It's more like going to T-Rex. Um, well, again, I don't want to, um, you can disagree with me. I mean, be well, be for it for me to be disagreeable. I am, (laughs) I am not disagreeable. No. For the record. No, no. Noted. Uh, I, you know, look, I, th- I think part of it, look, the menu prices are there. If you're not paying attention to what you're ordering and you order five or six dishes and it's $170, I don't know it's who not their bears fault. that burden. No, no. It's, it's caveat emptor, but just, like, if you think you're going to have a $75 dinner for two, if you're not getting two burgers... And two glasses, like in a glass of wine each, you're you're not getting out for you're not getting out for less than I'd say. You know, I'd I'd say conservatively expect to spend seventy dollars ish a person. Uh, okay. Well, or we spent. I guess we spent what fifty five a person. Yeah, and I and I think that's when when I go whether neighborhood or or not, I, I'm expecting to spend probably between forty and fifty on food. Pretty easily. Yeah. Because I know I'm getting dessert. Right. It puts it in the kind of Nancy Sussel, Riel. Right. And I I think those are also neighborhood restaurants. Right. Ambitious neighborhood restaurants. Yes. Okay. Uh, And then just briefly, uh, we went to Rudyard's last week for lunch. Anthony Callio, formerly of Pie Pizza, has found a new home there. And uh, he's doing some cool stuff. And, you know, I've known Anthony for a long time now. I've been a fan of Anthony's for a long time. And I continue to be a fan of Anthony Callio's. I, I was very impressed by kind of, you know, giving... Rogers has always had a little bit of a culinary legacy. You know, if, if nothing else, it used to be one of those old school answers to where's the best burger in Houston. It yes. was in the mix for that. Um, and so, you know, he's rounded out the menu. He's buying... He's buying good pasta. He's buying freshly made pasta from Ben McPherson and doing cool things with it. Um, and he's got some new sandwiches on the menu, smoked turkey. He's got a club on there that's really classic and really good. Um, and he's even got some vegetarian options. That's always been a part of his his mix at pie. So, yeah, I mean, you would go back to Rudyard's? I would absolutely go back. I mean, I, I am uh, an admitted um, Anthony fan. I think of nothing else. Um, he's passionate. Absolutely. And, and I, I think there's, you know, when when you invited me to lunch that day and and I was like thinking about Anthony and Rudd's, Rudyard's, I just thought, you know, this this kind of works. This kind of makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, he is someone who has kind of been interested in, like, bar food and feeding bar crowds. I mean, he parked by pizza in front of Catbirds for at least a couple of years. Yeah. So, you know, certainly that's like a, that's a crowd that he is familiar with. Yes. Uh, and a perspective. And I just, you know, he's been a part of Montrose for a long time. And so, like he said, he celebrated his 27th birthday there. He's been there for the various events that Rudyard holds, like mm-hmm. Run Up Story Time. 
So he has a deep affection for that place. I think he has an understanding of kind of what will and won't work there. And he has the support of management and the owner to make the changes that will make it more of a destination. And I mean, frankly, I, I love that they, they see kind of the standard as Haymarket, right? And they're going to print up, t- they want to print up t-shirts that say Rudyard's down the street from Haymarket for 41 years. Right. I just, you know, it's like, let's take aim, let's like take aim at the, at the biggest kid on the block and, and try to, you know, yeah. lure people to give you a shot. I think that all, that all makes sense to me. No. And you know, I, I did, I, I, I enjoyed, uh, everything that we had, uh, particularly that, uh, sausage or not so sausage or hydro sausage sandwich, uh, which was absolutely delicious. Yeah. He's fooling around with one of those. I think it's the Beyond Meat. Yeah. Beyond Meat Italian sausage. Yeah. Really good. It was very good. The salad was was very good. Uh, I got two thumbs up from the the club sandwich and the chicken salad from the significant other who's a fan, who's a uh, connoisseur of both of those dishes. Okay. So, yeah, I I look forward to to going back soon. All right. Matt Harris, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. All right. And I will be right back with Wayne Miller. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? I'm joined this week by Wayne Miller, owner of the legendary Texas barbecue joint, Louie Miller Barbecue in Taylor, Texas. I don't, I don't like to say my favorite this or my favorite that, but I, I think Louie Miller is my favorite Texas barbecue joint. So I'm thrilled to have you here. Thanks for doing this. Welcome to the show. Wow. Thanks, Eric. That's that's huge praise. I really appreciate that very much. Well, I just like what I, I don't always like to get into the best, right? I, I, I think cause that's like, cause I, I've, I've come to the realization recently that there's so much good barbecue in Houston that like on any given day, there's about a dozen places serving really great barbecue and kind of what you, what you perceive as the best really depends on like your taste and where you go eat will depend on like what's close to you. So like I've been going to the pit room and truth and Fiji's more because they're, they're close to like where I live and where I work, which means like I haven't been to corkscrew and Tejas and Killens as much, not because they're not good, but just because they're farther away. Yeah. So, but, but so there is just something about walking into Louis Miller with the smoke stained walls and the, and just the the small town vibe, and it's it's uh, there's a columnist for the Houston Press that started doing, uh, he started rating barbecue joints. He's he's got four criteria. One of them is is smokehouse aesthetic, and he grades it on a ten point scale. I feel like Louis Miller is like a fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, we all have a patina walking out of there every day. You know, it, it, yeah, it's, it's unavoidable. So so let's start there. I mean, because you grew up with. You know your your father Bobby and and your your grandfather, the eponymous Louis, um, operated the barbecue joint, and now it's it's in your hands. I mean, were you kind of aware of the restaurant's importance to people as you were growing up? I mean, did you feel, I don't know, not famous necessarily, but like prominent in your town? No. Okay. I didn't feel any of that whatsoever. In fact, I felt more like an indentured servant, if anything. <laughs> When my father took over from his father, it was 1974, I was eight years old, and he looked at me and goes, it's time for you to go to work, son. And I'm like, oh, really? 
<laughs> no. So he pulled me along. And, you know, my father looked at the restaurant as really a means to an end. It's a way to feed the family, keep the lights on, kids fed, shoes on our feet, roof over our head. He put all of his time and effort into that. He knew that his, uh, his product was what guaranteed revenue and traffic. So he focused inward. My grandfather was a bit different. He was more of an entrepreneur and he was a marketer. So he was a grocer by trade, to be honest. He was a retailer. So he looked outwards. My father looked inwards. The two complemented each other very well in helping to develop and mold and shape what Louis Miller became. It wasn't always what it is today. I mean, in essence, it is, but in cultural identity, it's not. Well, right. I mean, barbecue wasn't, I mean, food in general, barbecue wasn't as important to people then as it is now, right? So I, so. I, I would disagree with that. I would say that it was just as important, except it was, it was very, um, it was very localized and protectionist. So people went to their favorite establishment and it was generational going to these places. So you grew up, and there was a lot of nostalgia growing up in a certain barbecue establishment. You went there with your grandfather, your parents, every Sunday after church. And so there was this sort of built-in ideal, emotional, strong emotional nostalgia that people developed for their barbecue place. And so there was a lot of, you know, when I was growing up, there were three things you didn't discuss in mixed company. Religion, politics, and barbecue, because <laughs> all three were guaranteed to get you into a fight. So in today's world, it's, it's much different. It is very much different. But back in the day, it was, it was peasant food. It was, it was priced that way. It was treated that way. It fed blue-collar individuals, it, some white-collar suit and ties. But by and large, it was the, you know, we were an agrarian community, and so that's who we fed. So when did you start to notice that changing? I mean, Texas, I mean, because Texas Monthly has done their top 50 barbecue joints list since the 70s, but I, I mean, I feel like it kind of took a step. Was it 2003 that they crowned Snows as the number one barbecue the first Eight. time? 2008. 2008. That was, yeah, that was the first, not, that was their first descriptive number one. Before that, it was a top five. And they looked at that portfolio or basket of, of, old establishments, very much in the way that you describe what's happening in Houston right now. On any given day, any of these establishments could... Right, could Cooper's and Lano, Kreitz Market, whatever. You'd like, the, right. those kind of the holy, the, the Mount Rushmore plus one of Texas barbecue joints. Sure, that's what it was. And, and it stayed that way for quite a long time. And it wasn't until really the food revolution of the, of the 21st century that we saw a change that we saw people actually starting to move this direction because people wanted to know more about where their food came from. Farm to table, for us, you know, pit to plate, was, 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 was just getting started. And barbecue, at least the way we do it, is a very wholesome way of cooking and preparing foods. So you're taking whole large cuts of meat that aren't processed, and you're using simple processes, salt, pepper, a little bit of seasoning, smoke, and uh, you're making it happen. Yeah, I, there's, I think that's one of the things about barbecue that really appeals to people is that it's, you know, meat, salt, pepper, fire. Yeah, yeah. Time. Yes, yes. All, the whole fire thing. What I've come to learn is uh, I, I didn't know the cultural significance. My father didn't either. And I really had to leave and pursue 
a whole different career, look at life in a completely different manner. Oh yeah, we're com- we're coming to that. Before I before coming back in 2007 and saying, "You know, dad, I don't know if you realize who you are, but you're you're one of those foundational pillars in Texas culture." And he just kind of looked at me like, "What are you smoking?" Well, right. I mean, I I I think I think someone recently was telling you you t- you once told a story about you left Taylor and you you ripped the rearview mirror off your car like you you were yeah, you was, were ready to leave. never looking backwards that's right um and then you were in you were in accounting right is that is that or well you- I have I have degrees in finance with a minor in, in accounting and then I have an MBA with concentrations in economics and marketing to go along with four and a half years of civil engineering and two years of psychology all right so I'm gonna say that I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm just gonna say, like this, there's the scale and the reputation don't measure up. But my father grew up indirectly in the restaurant business. My grandfather owned a kosher catering company in Providence, Rhode Island. And I once, you know, I once said to my father, like, you know, you're a doc, you're a doctor. Why aren't why aren't you in the catering business? And he was like, well, they they never really wanted that for me, and I never really wanted it. So you you left it all behind. On my father's urging, yeah, he said the exact same thing. Look, this is hard work. You don't get to spend time with your families. You don't have vacations. You're married to this. There's better ways to make a living. You have a good brain. Go use it. So, so what brought you back? I mean, because you you could have just said, you know, this business has had a fifty year or sixty year run. Sell the property, call it quits. There was two phases that brought me back. The first was there was. Um, my brother was in the business with my father. He was a partner and that didn't work out. It didn't work out at all. My father called me sort of in the 12th hour saying, we need help. The business is about to go under. Um, your brother hasn't done well managing this. And so we need help. So he, I came in and bought my brother out, helped restabilize the company. And then I sort of backed off for a few years while my father decided what he wanted to do. He was already in partial retirement at that time, and he had to come back out. And I think, you know, that was hard on him. He was, he had already put in, you know, 28 years of, I think, hard labor. And right. now, day to day. And now he's yeah. got to grind it back up again. And I, you just, I have to think that that, um, unfortunately, helped uh, push him closer and closer to an early demise. But in 2007, he, it was, well, actually, 2000, into 2006. He had just received a James Beard, America's Classic, and I think his whole attitude toward the restaurant changed. He no longer saw it, I think, as just a means to an end, a way to to raise a family and keep them fed. I think he saw that it, it had greater value, greater societal and cultural value than it did before, and um, <clears throat> I think he also felt that now his his labors and his efforts actually had value to somebody other than us. So he wanted to preserve that. And for my part, I had grown up. I had seen the world a bit. I had uh, marched you know, down my own path. And um, I really wanted to spend more time <clears throat> with him, to be honest, and know him as a man. Because I look back at how, uh, how much he sacrificed and what it took for him to just diligently be in. He never missed a day of work. 
Not one. I mean, he had bottles blow up, stitches up his arm, signs fall on his head. He'd go to the doctor. He'd turn around and come right back and go to work. Yeah, the proverbial rub some dirt on it. And... Yeah, they don't make them like that anymore, right? No. So I, I wanted to know more about the man. I wanted to have a relationship with him as an adult, not as a father, provider, an employer, disciplinarian. There was, there was another side of him that I really wanted to know. So, And I also saw the, the, the significance. That's when I discovered the cultural significance of the restaurant. I saw that it was much bigger than what he had seen or what I had grown up in, that it had a greater impact. And Texas Monthly helped open that eyes, open my eyes to that a great degree. So, all right, so you, you come back and you help your father run the business. And, and, and at the same time, I mean, this is, this is about the time when, like, Aaron Franklin's starting to fire up his smoker in Austin and, and this, like, creeping, like, barbecue has become, I mean, barbecue's always been popular. This is Texas, but it's kind of reaching a new level of celebrity, I guess, for lack of a better, or prominence, for lack of a better word. Yeah, because it's no longer just this, this regional gem. It's now an international gem. It's, when you look at barbecue being exported to the four corners of the globe, it's not southern barbecue. It's not whole hog barbecue. It's beef-centric barbecue. It's, yeah, it's, 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 it's brisket Texas. and post oak. I That's mean, right. It's, yeah. it's what's going down. And domestically, that is where the fastest growing segment of the bar- barbecue industry has has been for the last 10 years. It's been in Texas, Central Texas style. Well, and you've had a big hand in that because, you know, when people, like when some guy wants to open a barbecue joint in Paris or London, like inevitably they make their way to you for training. Yes, and I gladly do that, which is not anything my father would ever have done. Well, his generation would have never done that. They were very protectionist about everything because unlike today, today we have seen a complete homogenization of process and product. In my day, in my father's day, every barbecue establishment was different, and every cook in that establishment was different. So people who frequent those, their favorite place, knew that there were certain days and certain times that you went for premium, top-quality barbecue. Holding was, wasn't the best, and consistency was just all over the board. Right, or maybe like certain, certain places specialized in certain, like, like even in Taylor, um, there's it's Taylor Cafe, right? Taylor they're, Cafe. They're known for their pork ribs. They always have been. And turkey sausage. Yeah. Yeah. So like even in Taylor, you might go to Louis Miller for brisket or I guess shoulder cloth, like way back in the day. Way back in the day. Um, or but you might go to but when you want pork ribs, you might go to Taylor Cafe. Everybody you know, you had your spots. And in in some ways that's still true today. But I think what you find in barbecue establishment today is they're much more well rounded. But, and, I, and I say that because nobody's really trying to figure out any process on their own. All the processes, you know, the standard for the industry now is a thousand gallon propane tank offset that slow cooks with post oak, salt, pepper, or some derivative thereof. It's wrapped at some point and it's held. All briskets are done that way, except snows. Right. Except snows, which, which I, honestly, I think is a wonderful thing because they are still some of that last vestige of what the industry used to look like. The, it didn't follow this, this standard boilerplate of process and product. But today, because everybody wants to do something that's popular and successful, they all, and the internet has made it possible 
for how-to videos to share information. And so what you find is this collapsing down to uh, processes being this is the only way to do it, when I don't think that's true. So, but I mean, but, but it is the way you do it. It is the way we do it. And, you know, but we, even the way we do it is a little different than the way others do it. I mean, we are a step before what you see happening now. We don't use propane tanks. We use flat, rectangular, high-rise, low-profile, horizontal convection oven. We also use an offset vertical convection just um, for cooking sausage and other white meats. So it's there's nothing conventional about our our space at all. Right, but I guess I yeah, I mean all these kind of new school barbecue joints all start to look the same with the the round propane tanks and the oversized fireboxes and the but I mean to their credit like th- those those methods do produce really delicious barbecue. They do. And the byproduct of that has been the quality of barbecue has risen dramatically. The consistency of barbecue has risen dramatically and that rising tide raises all ships so the more it becomes popular the more it becomes not only edible but delicious to a larger mass or group of people the more it becomes main, mainstream it's not just a special events food now people will add it in as part of their their dining you know rotation each week it's not just a once a month or a once a quarter meal now it I could have it two or three times a week, and that's fairly common. And there are there are weeks when I do that, and I, I feel like, man, I'm, I mean, too much barbecue, like, but 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 again, like if I, I don't know, like if I go have brisket at one place and turkey and sausage at another and ribs at another, and all the sides are different. I mean, I think that's one of the other changes that we've seen, even just the last five years, is that the like, you know, it it used to be like. You know, there's that Instagram account, no sides, no sauce. It's mm-hmm. like, I don't know, your sides better be good. Like, if your sides aren't good, it, it kind of hurts you on the in the public perception, I think. Right, because now that's become the point of differ- differentiation. Where it used to be, maybe it was taste, it may have been char, it could have been tenderness, moisture. Are you cooking fast? Are you cooking slow? Are you wrapping? Are you not? The meat was all over the place. Now the the meat is homogenized. The taste is fairly similar. The, the tenderness and, and juiciness is almost all on par with each other. So how do you differentiate one place from another? You know, now it comes down to aesthetic, service, sides, desserts. So sides and desserts, you're seeing this huge creative inflow in, in a way that we haven't seen before because that is the way people realize, I can be more creative with this. You're limited in your creativity on what you can do with the proteins themselves. There's only so much you can do. There's only so many meats and cuts available to do what we do in a long, slow fashion. So we're, we have to now spread out in another way. And what's that going to be? You know, ask truth and they'll tell you it's cake. Yeah. Hey, we're, I mean, oh, it works it's for them. Cake. Oh that my cake God. Is that phenomenal. is delicious. That is amazing cake. <laughs> I went to a, there's a, another restaurant that's also serving coconut cake. I was like, I think this would be fine. Like, I think three months ago, I would have been like, this is pretty good coconut cake. But in the last three months, I've had the coconut cake from Truth like like every like three weeks. And so I I just like go go get a slice of that and then figure out what they're doing and do that. Because like you can't you can't serve this like you or at least I don't like this as much as I might have a month ago. 
because the truth cake has kind of wrecked me for coconut cake. Well, it's sort of like Empire Cafe too, right? I mean, I don't know about, I, I, I was just there last night and I had some cake. Uh, I had some lemon poppy that was quite delicious uh, and some chocolate mousse that was quite <laughs> that is that is very that is very old school mantras of you shout out i think that is the first time empire cafe has been mentioned in 90 something episodes of this podcast well there you go empire i've always been a fan but but you know when i first started going there it was really just for the cake it wasn't for any other entrees or appetizers and uh, their cakes are still awesome but Truth is, is understood that you look at Miller Barbecue in Belton, they're really pushing the desserts as well. And if you look in both of those establishments, it's the matriarch that's leading those, the, the charge in those baked and dessert-driven areas. And I think people who have shared responsibilities in that way, where you have multiple family members involved in, in the business, and they all have their area sort of, of specialty, and expertise they sort of take over it and they really dive into it and they're expanding it they see that there is a market for those things it's not just beans potato salad and coleslaw anymore right so so then do you look at your menu and feel like i want to get in on that like of i want to course do it. you know i mean we're I, i'm in a weird position because i have such longevity of tradition that it's hard to to break too far from that i have to stick to that to a great degree where I find more uh, leeway is in catering, special events, things of that nature where, where I can actually, you know, I can, I can actually roll out some lamb where in, in the restaurant, it's the price point that's just too high. Right. So, I mean, I saw you at sausage wars and you were serving a, a beef rib sausage with hatch chilies and smoked Gouda. Yes. And you said, that's the first time you've put cheese in a sausage. Yes. I mean, it was, it was very tasty. It, you know, it's a work in progress. I thought it, the, this first iteration came out well. I have a few adjustments, but I was really pleased with the way the Gouda came out. And, and I have to, you know, we were been talking internally about which cheese will it be that we, we introduce. And we've tried a, a couple of different ones. Right. Um, I mean, jalapeno cheddar is kind of the standard. But everybody does it. Right. So we can't do that. I mean, there's, you know, there's got to be something different about it. So while we're looking at the same general family flavor profiles, we're just trying to do our own spin on those. All right. So, so is beef rib hatch smoked gouda sauce, like, is that destined for the Louis Miller menu at some day? Or do you feel like it would be too disruptive to the rest of what you do and it's only going to pop up like it? festivals and other special events that particular sausage will probably be a special event sausage or a catering sausage there'll be another version of that that'll be a brisket hatch smoked gouda so it, it's more affordable because the beef oh. rib, the beef rib sausage per link you know i can't sell it at ten dollars a link it's just not gonna it won't fly <laughs> i mean right it yeah. won't fly but it's you know i think that once we get it honed in it's it's really amazing so, you know, I'm, I'm not the quickest uh, product R&D producer. I think about things, I test things, I taste things. And about every two years or so, I'll roll out something different. And that's sort of the pace I roll at. But I also know that most of what we're rolling out has more to do with off-site um, 
service than it does on-site. On-site, we're, we're really trying to expand what we offer in services to our guests. Um, you know, you've been there. It's unbelievably hot in the summer, and having live fires inside doesn't help. Um, so we have that side dining room, which now I've, I've taken all the old screens out, put in insulated windows. We've added a furnace. We've added AC units. And now we just need to get the airflow right, some big giant fans uh, above us, and we can climate control that for a little older elderly people, for moms with young infants. Uh, they needed something a, a bit more uh, yeah, the it's, creature comforts. It's hard to tell people that sweating through your lunch is part of the experience. <laughs> you're going to love this 110-degree lunch experience you're about to have. I just, promise you. Just keep drinking iced tea. Yes. But I mean, but that's not the only... You're, you're making a number of changes in Taylor. Mm-hmm. I, I'm adding a bar. I've just built a deck, an outdoor pavilion. That will include a full-service bar. That project has been sort of two years in the coming. Taylor, has, it took a while to get our... Our permits. Yeah, you would think you would think the city of Taylor would want to expedite that. Uh, they're right? in no hurry. Yeah, <laughs> they're in no hurry. They know we're not going anywhere. So, uh, so that I mean, my focus is kind of turned inwards to those things um, and away from my pursuits here in Houston, looking for a spot. I, I don't want to say I was discouraged, but I maybe distracted is a better word of trying to find a space. I really think Houston is. I still think Houston's an underserved market. When you have this many people, uh, you know, a couple of dozen barbecue establishments just isn't enough. So I don't, I, I'm not concerned about, you know, is there room? I think this is, I think Houston is every bit as strong in both a, um, a restaurateur perspective as well as a uh, aficionado and fan purpose of barbecue enthusiasts. It, I don't know that it's always been that way, but I would say in the last 10 years, it has certainly developed into one of the, I think, top barbecue towns in the country. Yeah, I mean, I grew up, yeah, it's funny. I mean, I grew up eating, in Sugarland eating Vasa's Barbecue, which is, you know, Greek-owned, you know, sort of Damaris Papa style, lean, mild smoke flavor, uh, but then started reading people like Rob Walsh, who sent me to like Thelma's and William's Smokehouse, and so I'm wandering into parts of the city that I, I never knew about for kind of saucier East Texas style. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, you know, armed with a copy of the, the Texas monthly list. I, I think, I think I was in college. I think this is like sort of late nineties. Like that's when I finally made my way to like city market and Luling and crates and some of that stuff. So to see, you know, but, but as recently as, you know, five or six years ago, right. when, when we wanted, a really great barbecue experience. I hopped in, you know, I met up with Chris Reed and Michael Fulmer at like seven o'clock in a Starbucks parking lot and we drove to snows and then we went to, we went to Louis Miller after, right? That was the, that was the route. Um, you don't have to, I mean, you can still do that and that, and those mornings are still fun, but you don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to seek barbecue from outside. I mean, even outside the grand parkway, right? You can, you can stay in Houston and have a really great barbecue experience. You can stay in Houston and still drive two hours. Yeah, well, that's true too. Yeah, like if you're if you want to do if you want to do Killens to Reveille, yep. And there's traffic. Like if there's construction anywhere in between those two points, yeah, you're in the car for two hours. For yeah, sure. which is crazy when you think about it. But I mean, but but even with all that, I mean, there are still huge parts of the city, right? Like, 
you know, what's the best barbecue joint, you know, southwest of Blood Brothers, right? Like there's, you know, yeah, there's right. a huge section of the city that doesn't have a signature barbecue joint um, or, you know, Katie's still under. I mean, like, I feel like the loop, the the general sort of loop area is is pretty, pretty set. Yep. But, but I also feel, but I, but I would say the same thing about steakhouses and people keep building them. So, uh, you know, if you're serving great food, like people will find you, they'll find you. Um, but they won't find you for long if service doesn't go along with that. And the aesthetic doesn't, doesn't match as well. So it, it you really, we're all working off of a tripod, a, a sincere tripod. It, it's one, we can't be one dimensional purveyors anymore. All right. So I, I was having this conversation with someone last night, actually, who said, she thinks, in her opinion, restaurants are like 70% service, 30% food. And I think it's more like 60, 40 food and service. I guess it de- depends on which kind of a eatery you're going to. Well, that, that, that was my other argument, right? In Chinatown, where the food is cheap, I don't care. Like, if the food is good and cheap, then I don't care. I don't care how bad the service is. Right. Like I, but obviously, the higher price you're paying, the better the service has to be. It has to be. Right. And so when you're charging... 20 bucks a pound for brisket like the service has to be pretty good it has to be and because you know i think the other kick on barbecue establishments over the years is that's been sort of like the soup nazi approach to to service <laughs> you don't know what you want get back to the back of the line you know it feels that way it's uh, smitty's like my memory is like if you if you stand in that line and you and you warm your toes by the live fire that's like right next to you if you don't know what you want when you get to that block you are everyone behind you is going to hate you yeah they're going to hate you uh, and yeah, Kreitz, I think they'll just send you to the back. They're like, uh, <laughs> we're not, we don't have time for you next, <laughs> next. Yeah. So, um, the price of cows have changed things. The popularity of the cut has changed things. The, the movement of other eateries of other types of restaurants take are stepping into the brisket realm has also changed what we do. It's brisket is now as, as mainstream as roast beef. It's as mainstream is hamburger and, and something I thought I would never see. I, did, I never could have imagined that that would have been the case. But Right, because it's a pain in the ass to cut. It's a pain in the ass. And, and by that token, I didn't think that you would see establishments like ours actually still surviving at this late date into the 21st century. I really thought that when I was in high school, the whole trend was moving more toward automated thermostats, overnight cooking, rotisseries, set and forget, have a life. Right, gas assist. Gas and electric assist, yeah, exactly. And I, it was all going to be strip mall barbecue. I, I really saw that that's where it was going. And it, I, I don't know if anybody could foresee. I certainly didn't foresee this, this whole cultural movement to understand food and to really uh, embrace food as not only just an interest or a hobby, but it, truly as a way of life. And I think that sort of fomented and, and, and congealed around the food network. I, I don't yeah. I mean, I think top chef gets a lot of credit for that, right? Like that, that watching these chefs work with these products and, and the techniques that they employ gave and, and I mean, Alton Brown and, and some of the stuff that happens on the food network and hell, even Guy Fieri, right? Like going to these small places and, and places like Louis Miller and, and showing you, what it takes to create this food. I think that that all contributed to a greater understanding and interest in food. It, well, I think what Guy Fieri demonstrated clearly was, was 
the excessive power of video of a video medium because Jane and Michael Stern had been writing their road food manuals forever, right? And they wrote for Gourmet for a number of years. And they were doing the same sort of institutional review that Guy Fieri does, right? Except they did it in print. He's doing it video, easy, turn off your brain and watch. And, but he brought it into your living room. And as we all know, food, we, we eat with our eyes and our nose but long before we do our mouth and taste buds. So seeing these things, seeing these places, it also opened up a whole new a- avenue of pastime. We will now travel for food. We are going to travel the world and seek out unique regional foods that we can't, we can't find in our area that are just mind-blowing. And overwhelmingly, they're all peasant food. Yeah, this is why I, you know, when I go to the East Coast, I eat lobster rolls, right? It's the same, right? I, I want something. I mean, not that we don't have them here. It's just not the same. Of course it's not the right? same. Sitting, sitting, with the, sitting on the, by the dock with the salt air, it's, it just it makes it taste better. Right. And sitting in a, in a barbecue joint where you can smell the wood smoke and, and see the people who've been making it makes the food taste better. I think it does. I think that the whole experience um, supplemented by the, the service that you get, do I feel comfortable here? Do I feel welcome? Do, are they friendly, helpful? Uh, all of that plays into the mentality of what is this going to taste like? How am I going to remember it? Will I speak about it positively? Um, will it anchor into my memory in a positive, emotional way? And barbecue does. It's a very emotional food, unlike most others. Right. So do you think that this is permanent or do you think that this is cyclical and that we're going to go, we're going to have like another kind of dark period of bad eighties barbecue? Everything is cyclical. I I don't know of anything that's not people are, you know, establishments are always reinventing themselves. How many times has McDonald's reinvented itself? It's still here. Um, But the menu is while it has a core, it tailors to healthier it tailors to as quick as possible, uh, tailors to affordability. I mean, they know their niche, but they're constantly tinkering with their menus as most fast foods do. You can't stay pat. For us, it's so early to tell. But I think that we've been around for a long time, so there was an established base supporting the establishments that were out. Now there's just a whole lot of them. So. The ones that are going to make it not only are going to put out good food, but going to run their establishments well. Um, they're going to be good business operators as well as you know amazing cooks. So I, I think we'll see this for a long run. What's going to dampen it more than anything is cows. You know, um, I guess if if AOC gets her way, we're going to have to reinvent barbecue because all cows will be done away with. No more me- no more methane. No more, ma- yeah. I, I mean, I, I feel like that's more like a kind of far. I don't feel like that's a well. There's of no course, political I mean, will. This is there's no in, political this, will for that. But right, yeah. right. This, this is this is tongue in cheek. I, I mean, my point being, it's going to take a lot to remove cattle and beef from the diets of a growing of of a growing middle class, say in China. Um, India is a different a different thing altogether. Right. But, I mean, we have our share of Indians, too, uh, that come through. Not devout Hindus, but, you know, um, they, they do come through. But I, I think that the demand, and what we see, the price reflects it. The demand 
for beef continues to rise. It's considered the premium protein, and we're we're front and center, you know, in that production. So, no, I don't I don't see that changing. Um, what I see changing is the way everyone serves. I I can see a movement toward less and less one-on-one service, more and more um, at a distance digital service, at least coming in, placing orders. You might have expediters. You might have some touching of tables, but I can see a contraction in in the labor market for for restaurants and an increase in technology. Oh, yeah. I mean, but I don't think that, I mean, part of the barbecue experience is, watching them cut it in front of you. I mean, I don't, I don't know that that movement, like that movement makes like the digital ordering screens at Shake Shack. That makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. At barbecue, like, I don't it, know. I mean, you may just be put on this on display behind a, a, a big, you know, uh, pane <laughs> glass. And there's the guy, you know, just cutting away, just cutting orders. And that's all he's doing. It, you know, it seems, you know, it's, it's very, uh, clinical and sterile and removed. Uh, but it, you know, nothing ever stays as it is. There's, there's no status quo forever. The, all things are dynamic and constantly fluctuating and changing. Um, we've done our best not to, but you know, it, I can foresee that it, there will be a time. I mean, I'll do my best to keep things the way they are as they are and as they always have been, but I can't, how can I speak to the generation after me? I, I don't. I, I think they'll they'll take more steps toward efficiencies because that's what's going to be required to run the business properly. Right. Well, so I, I mean, so you're the third generation owner. Mm. Have you started to think about the fourth generation? I mean, does your does your daughter have any interest in the barbecue business? Thank God, no. Uh, she, her aspirations are a little greater. Um, you know, you hope better for your your offspring than you than you had for yourself. My father encouraged me to pursue an education and I did. And I'm so incredibly thankful that he gave me that opportunity and encouragement. My daughter is, she doesn't know any other thought other than um, pursuing um, an academic career that will eclipse mine and her mother's. I think that, you know, both her mother and I have master's degrees. I, she wants to be a doctor. She wants to be, um, she wants to actually. She wants to uh, be a mechanical engineer um, that goes into medical practice, creating prosthetics for children. Wow. Yes. I so, mean that. So I mean, that's, that's, I really that's a love barbecue. Year old today. <laughs> I don't know. I I really love barbecue. That may be more important than barbecue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, here my thought really is if if I can do my job well and I can create an environment, a structure, and a team that can operate this with little outside assistance or inside assistance from me, then the establishment can, can continue even though I'm no longer involved or no longer around. It can stay in the family and she can decide what she does with it. If There's no telling. Her offspring, her kids, they may decide that's something that they want to pursue. Right. And, and of course, if you, if you were able to do that in Taylor, then you could, you could open another location in Houston maybe. Every, anywhere, everywhere. I, there, I look at, I look at the U S map and I just, all I see here just, is just vast, wide open spaces of, of barbecue blank canvas. 
There's, there's not a lot of what we do. There's a lot of barbecue out there, but there's not a lot of what we do out there. Even with its mass expansion, there's, you know, you got 330 million people that, that can be fed and we're, we're not even scratching the surface. Yeah. And they, they, and you know, relatively few vegetarians and vegans. So they might, they might, they might really enjoy a Louis Miller beef rib. Well, you look at California. I mean, California is, is one of those virgin sort of territories. You've got Trudy's in, in LA, you got Moosecraft down there. They're, they're really sort of making their niche. You've got Horn up in the Bay Area, but uh, those are the, probably the most popular and well-known and doing it the best, I think. Um, but that's three, and you're talking about, what, 15 million, 14 million people that their pop-ups are trying to serve? Right. That, that to me, is mind-boggling. I mean, environmental pressures and regulations really make it difficult in, in the West Coast, but that doesn't mean there aren't inroads that can't be made and that these things can't be done. It's just a matter of someone having the fortitude to go in and make it happen. Because the first one that actually breaks through with a brick and mortar gets the full offset fire, wood fire smoking in Los Angeles approved, then I think you're going to just see they're going to explode. That's because that's what Los Angeles is like. Anything that that's popular, there's all the money you need out there to invest in it and make it grow quickly. So it's, they're holding out. They're, they're going to... They're going to fight for tri-tip, but I, I think ultimately it's going to it's going to succumb to. It just doesn't. It, it it just doesn't. You can't get that much smoke in tri-tip. I mean, it just doesn't taste like barbecue. Like I I, I mean, I've had it, and and it's not that it's, it's like it reminds me of the London broil that we yeah you know that we grill over charcoal growing up. I mean, it's it's not that it's not tasty. It's just not. It's just not as flavorful. It's not as rich and satisfying as barbecue is. right it's too lean yeah fat is all it i am all for fat i can't i, I if i i would have prime everything i would have wagyu everything um all cuts i you know make the cows just incredibly fat all the time <laughs> and and they're more they're more delicious when when they're dripping with fat it's and, it's true it is true. And so, you know, and with the carnivore and the caveman sort of paleo diets that are out there that are all about protein and some vegetation and, and fat, then pile it on. Um, I mean, I, I feel like I could go for like another hour, but I think I'm going to, I think out of respect for the, the listeners, I think I'm going to, I'm going to wrap it up. But I, I, I do always end these with uh, something I call the lightning round. Five easy questions, five short answers. Hmm. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Wayne Miller. When you when you when you come to Houston, what is the what is the must visit restaurant that you you always go to? You know, I don't eat much in Houston anymore. When I because my my trips to Houston are to see my daughter, and what she wants to eat is what we eat, and that is absolutely true. And what does she like to eat? Chick fil A. <laughs> Although she does like she does like beef, um, but she's you know she's a typical sixteen year old so. In the last several years, since I since I moved, really in two thousand seven eight, I have not spent much time here eating, and that's that's to my detriment. And I've promised a lot of people I would be there, and I still haven't made it. All right, um, what is the first band you ever saw in concert? First band, Foreigner. What is your who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Nolan Ryan. What is your 
fast food guilty pleasure, it has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru. Double meat, Whataburger with cheese. That's a great answer. <laughs> and finally, uh, what is your go-to pizza order? Oh, my go-to pizza order. Like you walk into a pizza it, place for the first time, I'm getting a listen to that. It's uh, it's usually a thick crust, hand hand crust, uh, extra cheese, uh, all meat, pepperoni, sausage, and hamburger. Love it. All right, give us the the website and all the uh, Instagram and all that for Louis Miller Barbecue. Louis Miller Barbecue can be found at texasbbq.com. You can find us on Twitter at Louis Miller BBQ. Instagram also Louis Miller BBQ. Thanks so much. You're the best, Eric. Thanks for having me. All right. You can follow me on Twitter at E. Sandler, on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.